Hello, my friend, and welcome to this episode of Guru in Your Ear. I am Dennis Gebhardt with Guru Nation, and I'm so glad that you chose to join me today as we explore the different ways of surviving the change. No, that's not the change I'm talking about. That's not the kind of change we're talking about. I'm talking about surviving the change of hair color brands. I'm sure you've uh, gone through these times in your career where you have either switched brands for some or some odd reason, and uh, it is a process. You know, have you ever observed the behavior of some of the salon professionals when they were about to change a hair color brand, either voluntarily or as a team member that had no choice because it was a management decision? The look of fear in their face. You know, the frustration uh, that they expressed about losing and having to replace their favorite formulas, their favorite recipes, and sometimes even the visible nausea of having to do what we call learn a new brand. And I don't know why we do this to ourselves. Uh, we just work ourselves up into this whole big thing. And really, when you think about it, it's a lot more simple than that. You know, I believe that these reactions are triggered by the belief that there is a huge difference between color brands. I think that's the biggest thing. That's why we consider, well, I have to learn a brand new brand. So let's take a minute and just look at some facts. I just want to share some facts with you today. Uh, what if I told you that dye intermediates, that's oxidative dyes are not as plentiful as you might think. Therefore, it's fair to assume that there is probably more duplication of dye intermediates than individuality that are used in our industry. So what does that mean to us? That means that there's a lot more similarity in the colors. If you think about the alkalinity, the alkalizers, there's only really three alkalizers that are currently used in professional hair color brands. It's either ammonium hydroxide or monoethanolamine. The difference is ammonium hydroxide is a volatile, so it starts the action and then dissipates. Monoethanolamine is a fixed alkali, so it maintains the pH of a solution. And actually, monolithanolamine and ammonium hydroxide are like chemical cousins. If I take ammonium hydroxide and I change one component of that, I have monolithanolamine. And then, of course, there's a third alkalizer that we are using today called aminomethylpropanol. These are all really big words, and I'm not going to spell them for you. Uh, but you can play this back over and over until you get the pronunciation down. But that's it. Those are the only three alkalizers that we use, along with very similar oxidative dyes, you know, PPD, uh, aminophenol, um, paratoluene. These are all dye intermediates that, that we work with in this industry, and there's a small collection of them. So even though there may be 62 different brands of hair color, you can pretty much bank on the fact that they're using similar basic ingredients. Now, let's, let's even go down further. All hair colors have to have surfactants so that 
that's a vehicle that's used. That's an ingredient that helps it apply to the hair smoothly and remove from the hair nicely. They have to have some sort of solvent so all the ingredients work together. They all have to have some sort of resorcinol. The reason I say some type of resorcinol is because resorcinol gets a bad rap. But in chemistry, we change a few of the components of it. It becomes 2-methylresorcinol, which is resorcinol, <laughs> and people are accepting of it. So we have to have something there because resorcinol is what develops this is in it's what adheres the dye intermediates to the structure of the hair without resource and all we wouldn't have a successful color results got to have some sort of chelating ingredients in it because it's a chemical that will protect against metallics and prevent any kind of uh, any kind of uh, chemical reaction and we have to have some preservative something to keep the color so if you break it down like that Pretty much every color fits in that category. There's not one that does not fit in that category. So why are we getting all upset? Why do why do we think that, you know, all permanent, you know, some so-called demi-permanent hair colors, you know, they're so very different. They're not. We have to stop creating those mental divisions and understand that it's just color. I think I know why. Maybe you can help me. Do you think it's possible that we mistake the marketing story of a product as the science story? And so the marketing story is a story that's created to influence you to buy the product. Now, you have to know that not always does the marketing story, is it relevant to how the product actually works? And so as salon professionals, we have to understand that. We have to embrace it. There's no, you can't, you can't just simply refuse to embrace it because it is the way that hair color works. So we have to get out of the marketing story mindset and the science story mindset. Add to all of this that the average hairdresser makes brand choices. They did a study on very superficial information. So they did a study on us, and they found that a majority of us make our decisions on a hair color brand based on what they would consider superficial information. Even though we might think it's important, it's really superficial. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that those, those points may be important, but there's other things. What I'm saying is that at the end of the day, they're not all, all the information we need. So many times our choices are made based on smell. <clears throat> does it smell good? Mixing. Does it mix easily? Application. Does it apply well to the hair? Shade choice. Does it have an extremely wide palette of shade choices? So like, you know, we have so many swatch books that have 30 pages. <laughs> they have 300 shades. Okay. And then, of course, the swatch book. If the swatch book is really cool looking, people get really excited over the swatch book. Although the swatch book is important, it, it's not really a definite um, key to why I would purchase the product. Now, I know you're saying, well, then what do you use as your criteria? 
although all these behaviors may be important to us, I have some suggestions I want to add for this today. If and when I change hair color lines, these are the steps that I would follow in addition to what I've just listed and the tools I would use. First, I would get some of the color that we're looking at, the new color, the new brand, and I would do side-by-side dye-outs with the current brand that I'm using. And I want, and I would choose my favorite formulas because I know what those finish like. I know what they look like. So those side-by-side dye-outs are, the first, are first performed on white cotton. So you go to the fabric store, grab a white T-shirt. It doesn't matter. But we're doing it on white cotton. Why? Because white cotton is void of tonality, and it will not interfere with the finished result. By doing it on white cotton, it is telling to tell me exactly what's in my color. Because I want to compare what we describe as backgrounds. I want to see, do they have similar backgrounds? If my background is cooler than the brand I'm considering, that brand could be misread as being lighter. I'm sure you've heard people say that. Well, this level five is lighter than my level five. It's really not lighter than your level five. It's just that it's warmer. Therefore, it's going to have more reflect. And that is something that we interpret as being lighter. We read it as being lighter, even though it's just simply a warmer version of that level. It's not lighter. It's just warmer. More reflect, which is many times red as lighter. Are the vibrant reds really vibrant or are they more brown with red? I got to know that, so I want to dye them out. If they are more brown than they are red, that means that there's a lot of background in those red shades. And if I'm trying to create a vibrant red, I'm probably not going to be able to do it using that formula. I'm going to have to adjust it. Are my vibrant goals really vibrant or are they more brown with gold? If they're more brown with gold and I'm trying to create vibrant, I'm not. I'm going to have to adjust it. What if they're too vibrant? What if they're extremely gold? And now I'm afraid to use them because they're extremely bright because they have less background. That tells me that when I formulate, I'm going to have to do some mixing of families in order to create the results that I'm expecting. How about the ash shades? Are they really ash or cool? Or are they more brown than ash? If there are there cool tones in the ash family at all? Sometimes you die out your ash family and you see no cool tones whatsoever, which means that they will not give you any control over warmth. So you're going to have to add something to them if you're using that brand. Now you may make discoveries about your current brand. Your current brand may not have any ash cool tones in their ash family, but the brand you're considering may have cool tones in their ash family. And that would be a great reason for me to move into the new brand because it is already gonna help me control warmth, which is the biggest thing that we challenge ourselves with in this industry today. It doesn't make the new color bad, okay? The dye-outs speak to us. We have to learn to read those dye-outs. They're telling us that if you're attempting to match the color you're currently using, 
you may need to adjust your formulation. That's important to know. We can't just use somebody else's six in place of our six if there is a difference in the way that those two colors finish. Okay, so that's why many times when a color does not finish as expected, we are taken back and end up doing what I call word salad, trying to throw out reasons why it didn't come out the way we expected it to until our guest starts nodding her head in agreement, and then we can move forward. It's funny to watch us get stuck in that situation. It does sound frightening, doesn't it? By performing die-outs, we begin to formulate from confidence, and we stop formulating from fear. In fact, if you've not died out your current brand, I recommend that you do that. It will be amazingly revealing to you about what exactly is in your color. So many of us have used colors for years, and we realize once we do dials for the first time, oh my God, this is not the color I thought I'd been using, and I've been using it for years. Now, once I do the dials on cotton, now I move on to using swatches. And um, you can get swatches from Amazon. You can buy the blonde swatches from Amazon. Now I'm going to do side-by-side on swatches because they're going to now be contributing some tonality to my finished result. I'm working with hair, so I feel better about that. Okay. The goal here is to see if the dye-outs match your swatch book samples. You know, can you dye out a swatch with the color? and then lay it against the sample in your swatch book, which, by the way, is made from plastic, nylon. It is not even real hair. And can they visually be, will they match? Will they be on point? Surprisingly, many times they are not the same, which really kind of negates the whole use of the swatch book if the colors in the swatch book do not match the color on the swatch. Now, this should not reflect negatively on the hair color. It simply means that I may have to adjust the way I formulate. None of this makes one hair color bad over the other or one hair color good over the other. It means that we are becoming aware of how each one of those brands of color perform. Now, the next thing I do, I compute the cost per application. How much does it cost me when I mix up 60 grams of product. How much does it cost me when I mix up 30 grams of product? Surprisingly, in our industry today, many hairdressers do not know what their cost per application is. And that is why many salon professionals today are operating in a negative cash flow. Not because they want to, but because they haven't taken the steps to compute the cost per application. My mentor always said to me, be sure that the cost of your product never exceeds 10% of your service fee. So my fee structure, and you know, I need to make sure my fee structure does not put me in a negative cash flow when I perform my hair color service. And I can only do that if I do my homework before taking on a new line. Now, can, I hope you can see how eliminating the marketing story and testing products based on performance only, you can eliminate so many of the fears that we conjure up in our minds. 
After all, my friend, at the end of the day, they are all just hair color. When we learn to look at it in that way, we will avoid the fear. We will avoid the frustration of losing our favorite formula. We will avoid the nausea of having to learn a new line. And we will be able to survive the change. Now, I hope this message has given you a few nuggets of information, some behaviors to think about, and a few aha moments today. If it has, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow our podcast on anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at RealCaptainColor and on YouTube at Guru Nation. If you found this information beneficial and you want to learn more, you can purchase my new book, Captain Color vs. the Pigment Pirates, at Dorian's Bookstore, all one word, Dorian's, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, bookstore.com. And uh, that book will give you an insight into what we teach at Guru Nation, uh, some of the systems that we use, and what we believe as a company. So, until we are together again, this is Captain Color signing off. Captain Color out. Have an amazing day. The preceding has been a production of Guru Nation a brand-neutral educational resource for salon professionals.